0: I want to start this episode off by reading a scripture and this comes out of Alma chapter 30 verse 44 and it says all things denote that there is a God yea even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it yea and its motion yea and also the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator so does the earth really testify that there is a God well on this episode you're about to see that indeed that is the case. I have Russ Barlow back on the podcast to talk about his new book, Water, Another Testament of Christ. Russ shows in the book and this conversation that this basic element contains the mysteries of creation, spiritual lessons, and even water's prophetic role in the celestial world. Stick around to have your mind blown and your testimony strengthened on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. I told you last week that uh, i had another announcement coming so here it is um first as always just let me thank you for listening for supporting when you have i can't tell you how much that means to me now let's move on here so here's the announcement i am going to start start offering um exclusive content on patreon and that's going to be broken down into three categories but before i do that uh, I want to tell you why it is I am doing what I'm doing here. And I'm going to make an admission I haven't made before on the podcast here uh, as I tell you why it is I'm doing what I'm doing. Back last September, um, I lost my job because of the podcast. Um, essentially, uh, the the company I worked for was uh, working for a client uh an organization that found out that i was doing the podcast and there was some pressure put on to uh get me to put the mic away and just shut up as you can probably guess shutting up isn't necessarily my forte not my thing um so i told them no probably less diplomatic diplomatically than what i should have but nonetheless i told them no um and they said, "Then you no longer work here." Now, I was very fortunate and very blessed that I was able to go out and find another job. Didn't take me long at all. however, it it did reinforce this idea that that i'm I'm susceptible because I am so public. And certainly, while I put my trust in the Lord, um, I kind of asked him what I should do here, just in case this ever happened again. And the idea of of charging for the podcast just didn't feel right. And so I, I was kind of hesitant on what to do. Um, I've also sunk some money into this for software, for hardware, and it, it's gotten a little expensive. So I need to try to offset those costs if I can. So here's what I I've, I've decided on. Rather than beg for donations... Um, I want to start giving you something that maybe you feel is um, uh, worth your time and worth your money. I've never wanted to waste your time on this podcast, not once. As I thought about, okay, do I put the old episodes behind a paywall? That didn't feel right either. It felt like priestcraft because I'm not, these aren't my truths. These are God's truths. And I feel like this is a calling for me to get those out there. So I I racked my brain hard on what to do, and after a lot of prayer and some fasting, the idea came to me, um, rather than put an episode behind a paywall, offer extras, and that's what these three packages are going to do on Patreon, is is they are going to um, give you an opportunity to purchase extras. Now, I want to start by saying this, the podcast itself will always be free. I can't charge for that whatsoever. I wouldn't feel right about it, and it just doesn't sit well with me. So you'll always be able to go to Spotify or Apple or wherever you are getting your podcasts and download it there. And that's always going to have commercials and ads and those sorts of things. So let me break down the three um, uh, packages, if you will, that you can purchase on Patreon that will help me hopefully generate some income. Now, package one I've titled Slightly Rowdy. And on that, you're just going to get uh, ad free audio. And that's $3 a month. Now, package number two, I've titled Stirring It Up. And on that package, you're going to get um, ad free audio, ad free video, and transcripts. And transcripts is, are something that I've been asked for a lot. So that you can have all that for $6. The third and final package is um the full renegade package and on that you're going to get ad free video ad free audio the transcripts and then two additional items and i want to break those down here real quick the first additional item is a private community through discord this will allow you the listener to get on and talk about some of these things with other mormons uh, of many different stripes if you're an lds person and you have questions but you, you know, it's not like you can go to your bishop and say, hey, you want to break down blood atonement for me or plural marriage or um, Adam, God, you can get on there and, and there's going to be people on there that will help answer those questions for you. The nice thing about this is, is it's not like a Facebook group where you're going to have um, the potential of having someone from the Strengthening Church Members Committee there to take your information down and haul you into the bishop's office or, or. Maybe you're already a fundamentalist, but it's just a question you don't feel comfortable asking uh, anybody else. And you can do that anonymously, obviously, on this um, on this community uh, chat room, so to speak. Now, the final um, extra you get in that full Renegade package is there's going to be an additional show that I'm doing with Benjamin Winfield uh, called More Fun News. And we've already recorded a couple of episodes, and it's a great time. And what we do is Ben and I get on there, and we pick out three or four news stories a week for that week that we thought were important or interesting or maybe even a little funny. And we break it down from a very Mormon point of view. Now, that last package, the the full Renegade package, that's yours for $12. Now, if you can afford to do this, that's great. If you can afford to buy any of those packages, that will help. If not, I completely understand. And please don't feel like you got to stop listening. Like I said, I'm always going to have those podcasts available for you with ads for free on Spotify, on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. So that's it. That's, that was the next big announcement. One last thing I want to mention is that uh, in the coming weeks, you'll see a new website up. And that new website will have um, an ability for you to be able to search episodes by topic, uh, by guest, whatever it is. You're going to have some options there that that you can really dig into the website and and extract useful information as as quickly as possible. To sign up for the Patreon, I put the link to the Patreon in this episode's show notes. Go there, click on it. If you can afford it, God bless you. Um, As always, I appreciate all the support. I appreciate your listenership, and I look forward to continue to bring you uh, excellent guests on interesting topics. Thanks. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Russ, welcome back, man.
1: Dave, how are you?
0: I'm good, dude. I gotta tell you, it was so good to see you at the Book of Mormon Evidence Conference. We do this, you know, over Zoom like this, and and don't get me wrong, we definitely get to know each other, but there's something about just meeting a guy face-to-face, and it was just really good seeing you there.
1: I love being face to face. That's my favorite because you can read the people, and you know it's just it's so much better to actually feel the spirit and and cross palms, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. Well, and and yeah, there is something about reading a person. And if you read me, you could tell that I'm really big into pizza. I mean, my my girth really tells that story. So
1: is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a girth similar to yours, except yep. I don't eat a ton of pizza, but I still there it is. It is. I don't don't do soda, don't do sugar, don't do any of that.
0: Dude, there's something that happened when I turned about 40. I'm 45 now. I turned about 40. And like before 40, I could go to the gym and lose five, 10 pounds without much of an issue, right? Jump on the, jump on the treadmill or the stairmaster, lift some weights and it'd just fall off. Now, it's like, once it makes it home, he's like, that fat is there to stay, you're gonna have to work extra hard. And things hurt like never before. And yeah, yeah. Getting old's not for the for the faint of heart. It takes a certain amount of bravery, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So, dude, when when I was at the Book of Mormon evidence conference, um, there was a book there that you had just wrote. And at first, when I looked at the title, I was like, well, that's kind of different, right? Like I, I couldn't see the tie-in, but the what's the title of the book again?
1: Uh, the, the title of the book is Water: Another Testament of Christ. And yeah, so and, people and thought, I, oh, how I'm is not, water?
0: Yeah. As I, I looked at that, I was like, well, I, I suppose all things testify of Christ, but what's what's special about water? So I got to tell you,
1: I'm, you know, I'm, I'm been working with lots of books, lots of people, a lot of things that I've been working on, you know, working with the Universal Model and with the Joseph Smith Foundation on some of their books and our own workbook. So I had five books on my plate last November, and I was feeling pretty overwhelmed, and I didn't know which of these books I needed to get done to be ready for the expo. And so I made it a matter of prayer and went to the Lord, and his answer was none of those. <laughs> so, uh, even though all of the other five books actually have a decent amount of work on them, I've, one of them is called The Three Biggest Lies. It's also a same size book. One of them is Apostasy in America and the Church. And then there were some guidebooks that were for homeschool. So, they're pretty cool books, a lot of stuff happening. But the Lord said, Nope, none of those. I want you to write a book on water. And I had the same expression that you did when you saw water like why what what could possibly be important enough about water that I should write a book on water and this was right at the end of the very last week in, in November what amazed me though is how the entire thing flowed out so quickly that I was able to write the book get it set in InDesign and get it off to the printer in about three and a half months wow um, and, and that's with my audience was to be people like men who don't like to read a lot and women too, but you know, we get busy. We don't like to read the universal model book that I was a part of is 800 pages. And most people love it, think it's great, but haven't read the whole thing. it is too big. Right. So my goal was to have a pocket size book that was about 200 pages, but it had to have lots of colored pictures because guys read pictures. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We the book, we read the pictures, right? Right, and we also have to have footnotes because we don't trust anybody. We don't want my opinion. I want, I want to know what the truth is. Where's your source? So that was my goal. Write it to guys. Lots of pictures. Footnote it so it's not my opinion. It's just here's some information, and then see what you make of it. So that's, that's the premise of how I like to to do that stuff
0: that must have been somewhat daunting to, to just get started on that. Right. At first, because you're like, how do I approach this? I mean, how, how do I, how do I, I show that water and I know how you felt. I mean, I, I can say that for certain. Sometimes the Lord asks you to do certain things and you're like, dude, what, what are you talking about? Right. Or at least I do, because you know, this podcast is a good example. I have no idea. Didn't have any idea how to do it. So yeah, it was it was one of those things where when when you first get going, I mean it's it can be a bit daunting.
1: Well, share screen. I'm gonna show you kind of how that happened. Okay. So the first thing I did is I actually started just kind of going through and writing out what um, if I was going to tell a story about water and creation and that, what would it look like? And that's what I put out there first. As, and I just started in the beginning. That's this, that's where the gospel starts. That's where we're supposed to start the gospels, in the beginning. And then I went through and talked about the science of water in the universe. Okay, how did water affect Eden? And then I just kind of carried that through. And today we'll go through those. That takes us all the way. From the very beginning, all the way to the end, when the temple is going to be built in New Jerusalem and what it represents.
0: I see. Okay. I see where you're going here. All right. So let's start. Let's go ahead and just jump in.
1: Well, the first thing that I like to talk about is Joseph Joseph's translation, And that's actually, even though it's a little bit of a side note, I recently had an opportunity. I worked with a restoration church in Kansas City and reprinted the inspired version of the Bible. This is a leather deluxe edition that you can get we we have it available on our website also at trueseekersfoundation.com but this is an actual reprint of the 1867 version of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. Most people don't realize that just 2 months after the Book of Mormon was published in April 30, April of 1830, Joseph receives a revelation to translate the Bible in June of 1830. And that translation process begins, of course, in the beginning with Genesis. Now, mainstream LDS church has that, has the first few chapters in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, but they don't have the whole of that creation or the uh, entire Genesis. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means a little later on. But here we start about where King James Bible. So this is... This is a quick read. You don't, and I don't dive into a lot of history, but I do footnotes. I tell the story about how the 1867 Bible came to be and why it's important. And well, I also Ruff, talk can, about. Can King I stop a-
0: you just for a second? Because I want to say something about the Joseph Trans Joseph Smith translation. I, I The LDS Church did us a great service by putting in a lot of those footnotes in there. But if you can get a hold of the, the the Joseph Smith translation, and they're out there, they're not hard to find, I would encourage everybody to get that. Because we, we definitely get a sense of just how amazing Joseph Smith was and his, his, his ability to be in tune with the Book of Mormon. But when you start going through the Bible in the Joseph Smith translation and just see how it just kind of... For lack of a better word, cleans it up, right? A
1: sure. lot of
0: the texts that that I used to read as a young man, um, that was like confused that that was a little confusing. Almost all of those are cleared up in the Joseph Smith translation.
1: Well, it's important to recognize that when King James commissions the translation, the official translation of the Bible in sixteen eleven, this is the same time that the pilgrims, who were called the separatists, were trying to escape England for persecution, and they were actually captured, brought back, and jailed at the same time that this is going on. So King James is not necessarily a friend of the truth of what's in the Bible. One of the instructions he gives the scribes that are working on the translation is if there is conflict between what the Church of England is teaching, that they are to make sure that things align with that. That's part of the plain and precious truths. And so we read the King James Version as the most, most authoritative, generally speaking. But it's really critical, and I'm going to share one part that's real, the, the most important, I think, of all, about why reading the Joseph Smith Translation is something all of us should do all the time. Now, like you said, you can get it pretty much anywhere, but we actually have it available, the leather version. Um, also, we have the annotated version of the New Testament. And we just sent off for the printer the annotated version of the first five books of Moses. So, yes, you can get it, and you get it in different ways, all of them on our website if you want. You bring
0: up a good point about the King of England, too, uh, King James. So I, I had the opportunity once to, to go through a Gutenberg Bible and then a Geneva Bible. And I want to say it's the Gutenberg, but I could I could be mistaken one of those copies was very unkind to monarchs right in the way it was translated Mm -hmm. and there there is a there is a vested reason why some of those plain and precious truths were were withheld because it it wasn't kind to the throne any throne other than God's.
1: you know that that's see here Dave, we're about to take a little journey, and this is what happens. is We get talking on a subject, and then we go off a little bit. So let's go off a little bit, should we? Yeah. So let's talk about the dream that Daniel had that he had to tra- to interpret for King Nebuchadnezzar about 600 B.C. And King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about the statue with the gold head and the silver, torso, uh, silver shoulders and breasts and then the brass torso and so on. Remember that? Yep, I do. And so the very last thing is that he says, "Thou seest until this stone is cut from the mountain without hands that rolls forth and and breaks the statue and the, and the iron and miry toes and anyway goes and fills the whole earth." And so that seems to be kind of cryptic. And then Joseph Smith later on makes a reference to that the restoration of the gospel is, that stone that is cut from the mountain without hands and so you, you kind of think okay now how do those two connect but what's important to recognize is that the story in first nephi where nephi has a vision he sees in vision in first nephi chapter 13 that this man is wrought upon to come across the many waters and comes to america so this is columbus now, you know, we can dive deep on that anytime you want, but I know, you know, the covenant land is important to you and to all of us. But where that comes from is, this is in 1492, and when Columbus actually is looking for a benefactor to pay for the voyage, he believes he's coming to find the Hebrew people. He believes he's coming to back to find the promised land as well as find a trade route. But he, he's got a very spiritual motivation behind this and so in a in a discussion i'll actually share that for a little later in the book um but anyway in 1854 is the printing press is discovered and in gutenberg the gutenberg printing press right Mm -hmm. and that's the first time the bible is published in latin And it becomes available, and then from that point, by the end of the 1500s, or in the end of the 1400s is when the the first German Bible is printed by Martin Luther, and then William Tyndall translates his Bible. So you've got a lot of things that are happening that the Bible is suddenly coming online and it's being made available to lots of people in a lot of places all at once because of the printing press. So that printing press is... That stone that is cut from the mount, from the uh, mountain. Oh, there. that's the stone. It's the Bible. It is the Word of God. And how oh, do we God. how do we know that for sure? Because if we follow the dream that me, that uh, Daniel had through each of those kingdoms, it comes down to where Rome is the iron legs. It, Rome was the iron kingdom, known as right. Mm-hmm. And yep. it has the miry toes, the clay and iron mixed together. This is this break, break apart people of the leftover Roman Empire. Now, Constantine reconsolidates the Roman Empire in the 300s and it stands for a thousand years at Constantinople until 1453. The same year that the printing press is being worked on and discovered, the Ottoman Turks come in and wipe out the last city of Rome. Mm. Constantinople, And it becomes Istanbul. So that's kind of the end. That's like, this is where it's all wiped out. Meanwhile, the Bible is published and it goes through and it starts destroying and breaking down uh, barriers. So I think it can be a point can be made that that's the moment that the restoration actually started was was right there.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that's, I agree with you. The restoration has been a process even before Joseph Smith. The, the Lord had to set the stage for somebody like Joseph Smith. And part of that was technology. Because let's face it, up until the Bible is published, realistically, literacy in the world, by and large, is floating way low. I mean, it's not even half the population that's literate. After the Bible is, is available to everybody, for the first time, you no longer have to go to a priest or anybody else to have them read you the Bible. You can read it at home. Literacy skyrockets.
1: But let, me, let me just kind of throw out an, an anti to your point for a moment, if I can. Sure. Because I'm not so sure that literacy was as big of an obstacle as it was literacy of the Latin Bible. So the Bible was only allowed to be in Latin, but the common people had a language. And here's another thing that you can always look for is that right before the Lord does something small, by small and simple means, things are brought about, right? You've heard that. Mm -hmm. The small and simple things is the printing press in in, uh, 1453 when this is all going on. But the bigger picture is the Renaissance has started. Now, the Renaissance, we hail and we go to these Renaissance days to talk about, you know, knights and and queens and princesses and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, the Renaissance was kind of the antithesis of the Restoration. And what I mean by that is that this is when uh, Shakespeare comes on and he basically sexualizes the entire language. Yes, he has a massive... Uh, vocabulary, and yes, he does all these things. But what he does is he turns the English language, and he sort of hypersexualizes the language in his plays and in his things, and he turns it kind of into Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Saturday Morning slapstick, right? So he brings he he brings this language down. He takes this this define or this refined language that's been a part of what you learned, and he brings it way down here. So now. Even though people are literate, they're mocking and they're, they're doing all this stuff. And the other thing is we herald Michelangelo. He's also a Renaissance painter, and he does all this stuff. But if you look at the Sistine Chapel, you see pictures of men engaging in sexualized kind mm-hmm. of poses, kissing men and hugging naked. And you see some of the statues that are heralding the, the genitalia of like King of David, you know. And, right even though the renaissance is a place it's like this blossoming of art it is a sexualization and it is demeaning and it's taking down the refinement it's tearing it down and people didn't even realize that and meanwhile this little teeny blossom of the reformation begins and the same thing happens over and over you can see that same pattern so i don't think it was just illiteracy i think it was a Tearing down of the refinement.
0: Sure, no, I agree with you. I could see that. Absolutely.
1: I, I okay, let's, let's let's jump into the water book for a minute. Yeah, I want to make a point here about the creation story in Genesis in King James. If you read chapter one verse one, you can't read it right here, right? It's right it's hard. That's an old version. It's the 1611 version that was first published. Okay, and it says, um. It's talking about the creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So that's the first verse, right? Right. When Joseph translates the Bible, the first thing that happens, he has this magnificent vision. That's Moses chapter 1, but in the inspired version, it's called a vision of of uh, joseph the seer and this magnificent vision identifies what the work of god is it ad- identifies what satan's role is what man's role is and what god's role is it's absolutely magnificent but then he says this at the very end he says i'm going to tell you about the creation and when i do i want you to write it and then when he goes to the translation this is Moses he's speaking to. The creator says, I'm going to tell you, write the words which I write. So he's giving firsthand instruction to Moses. I want you to write this down, right?
0: Okay. Yep. Which is something we don't get in the, in the King James.
1: Correct. And if you don't read the inspired version, then you don't get this. But what it does is it changes the story that says, in the beginning, I created the heaven and the earth. Mm. So, this is my story. I'm gonna tell you the story, Moses, and I want you to write it down. Wow. Yeah. And that's that's what we talk about in the first book. Here is, is all about that. What that exactly means is that this is my story, and I'm gonna tell you about my story. And and I, I know I'm scrolling back and forth here, but you can see what we're speaking of here is this this whole wonderful story about what God says. First of all, we know God lives in heaven. Right. Right. But he says he creates the heaven and the earth. Do we think that he creates the place where he is? No, of course not. So what we do know is that the word heaven means two different things. It's a place where God lives. It's also the first of God's creations. Now he uses the word earth. He says he, on the second day, he, he creates the earth. I create in the beginning, I create the heaven and the earth, right? Right. And he says, and the earth was without, without form and void. Well, then later on the second day of creation, he says, gather the waters together, cause the dry land to appear. And then he says, we're going to call that earth. So here we use the word earth in two different contexts. It's the same word, though.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, I, I see where you're going. Yeah. that now, That is... You know, and I want to go back to to water when when the Lord says when the earth was first formed and it was void and without form or without shape, I can't remember how it was phrased, what else could it be other than water Russ what other what other um,
1: well, he actually says paper? water, he says, in the beginning, I created the heaven and the earth." And the earth was without form and void. And my spirit moved upon the face of the deep. Right. Like, and he says, and I moved on the face of the waters. So he actually is the one that calls it water.
0: Right. No, so that's a good point.
1: Yeah. What he's describing, this is in scientific language. He's actually describing a, a, a liquid. And we talk about that a couple of pages down here we talk about what a difference between solid and liquid and a gas is. Okay, A solid has defined form and definite space. Now, this is one of the discussions like flat earth comes up every so often, right? And this is in on page 17. I actually have a little discussion about this. If the earth was without form, then it could not have been a flat disk. Right. Because that would that would not legitimize the language it would say there is a form but he said it was without form so that means there is no form well a liquid has an undefined form even right. though it occupies un- space and so the, the the lord is actually using scientific language to say that this is an undefined it's without form and it's void meaning it's empty And that stuff is water, because he says it's water.
0: Wow. It's amazing that we've missed all this stuff throughout the centuries.
1: Well, I think, you know, I think we have it. We just don't realize that it's so clear about what we are.
0: Right. No, I yeah. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: um, Before we get into the the water, I want to just mention one thing about... The day. So God talks a lot about the day, and this comes from the Hebrew word yom. And many Christians believe that this is a 24 hour period because that's what he says is day, and he only means one day. But we just learned that he used the word heaven to speak of not only where he is, but what he creates. We learned that he spoke of earth as the original sphere, but also the dry land that appears. So he's using the same word in two contexts for heaven and earth. Right. Now, the 24-hour day that you and I are used to didn't exist yet because there wasn't a sun in the sky to time that. Time is a construct of man, not of God. And so he uses the word day as a period of creation, but he gives us a very interesting correlation to that day because when he tells Adam, by the way, the Lord never tells Eve not to partake of the fruit. He only tells Adam that. Did you know that?
0: Well, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. No, you're you're right. He never speaks directly to Adam. Now no, he me... speaks to Adam, but not to Eve. Right. Let me let me push back there a little bit okay. and ask you this. Could he have been speaking? to adam because he was the head of the household so to speak the head of the family and he assumed that information applied to the family so to speak
1: i'm i'm gonna leave the interpretation up to however people want to do it what i want to do is just point you to the scriptures okay okay and so in the scriptures and again this is in the joseph smith translation so you've got you're not going to pick this up in the king james version you're going to pick it up in the inspired version right what happens is that adam is actually all these creations he says all things have been created spiritually before they were created naturally upon the earth Mm -hmm. so you're going through this creation period of all these things and then the physical creation happens in genesis chapter two and when that happens he says to adam this is where all the animals come they're all named the first thing he does is he teaches adam how to be an agriculturist you're going to plant the garden you're going to learn how to take care of all the garden by the way there's trees here and you can have all of this fruit that one tree you cannot partake of in the day this is where we come back to that word day if in the day that you take of that fruit you will die So, Mm so now we have a day that we can look at a construct of what the beginning and ending of a day is. And Adam lives 980 years and then he dies. So 980 years is pretty close to a thousand. Right. Peter in the new Testament in uh, second Peter chapter three, Peter explains that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. Okay. So, We have two testimonies here. We have Peter's in the New Testament, and then we have the life of Adam in the Old Testament, that he lives for one 980-year period and dies. That's a 1,000 years, right?
0: Right. No, I see that correlation
1: now. Now, now why I want you to, to understand this is that when Adam comes to earth, Eve is not there. He is actually being trained in the garden. He's given the commandment. He's Then the animals are there. He names all of the animals. And then he discovers there is not a helpmeet for him. Right. So she's not even on the earth when Adam receives the command not to eat of this, the fruit of this tree. (laughs) She's not even there yet. So it's not a matter of, of maybe he was talking to one versus the other. It's just simply... She's not there. Right. Then when she comes, Adam is the one that communicates to her the commandments that God gave them. If if you recognize that, you can understand why Adam actually got in so much trouble. Because when Eve offered him the fruit, he actually put her between him and God and listen to her. He, he violated who he was supposed to listen to. And that's what, that, that was a pretty serious consequence of that. Of that right. breach.
0: Right. But it was one that had to happen though.
1: Well, sure. There are lots of things that had to happen. You know, we could say that about much of the stuff that goes on on the earth and that's Okay. But it doesn't mean that, I think, see, in the modern world, we've got this idea that Eve had knowledge or had some idea. But if she had any knowledge whatsoever, any permission, any suggestion, then they didn't sin. They followed a whim. They they followed an inspiration or a whisper of the Holy Ghost. That didn't happen. It had to be on their own. They made a sin. Or they wouldn't really have sinned. They could point back to the Creator and say, "Well, you kind of told me we needed to do this. It had to happen, but it had to happen on those terms, or otherwise there would be no reason for the atonement." That's the you know. To, that's something people have to ponder. But it's in the Scripture, so you don't have to take Russ Barlow's word for it. Seriously, go read. The inspired version of genesis one and two and understand those things together put those in that context
0: all right no that's good stuff
1: so and all of this is this whole discussion about time and day and earth and all of that is in that first few pages of the water book in the chapter in the beginning gotcha And then here we are. We're on page 16. We're still talking about the second verse in Genesis of the Earth is without form and void. And that's where we started talking about solid, liquid and gas. Right. Right. And and so that it's a it's a simple read. It's not scientific. You can anybody that has no scientific background will understand this. I didn't write this for for, um, you know, PhDs or college kids at all this is just for average people you and me you know how would it be understandable so we could read it fast and easy and if you want to go deeper there's plenty of options i give you lots of footnotes
0: you wrote it so i could read it and still pay attention to my fantasy football team that's what you did
1: (laughs) so now we're going to talk about another very interesting thing surface tension and water when water by itself it pulls itself in And forms a, it's like it just pulls, everything pulls together and it forms a sphere. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in gravity or even out of gravity, it still forms a sphere. So I've got that picture in the book that's on page 18. These are drops on a leaf. So drops, if you can see a drop that drops out of your
0: your
1: faucet, it always forms a sphere. That's a testimony of what the, why are all the moons and earth and the stars and why is everything a sphere
0: i see yeah because i could it's a pattern absolutely a pattern yeah gotcha
1: now we also um then i get into a little bit of about what the internal forces happen inside a sphere and why there's heat and there's a little discussion about diffusion about how water kind of diffuses water is an amazing Amazing substance. It is the most amazing. It is truly a testimony of Christ in ways that, well, when we get through, I think you're going to be generally blown away. Okay. So, the next, very next thing if you take a liquid that is void or empty, which means if you take water and deionize it, you take all the impurities out, it gets pure, and you put some transducers on the side of a flask filled with this purified water that's you know the the water that's without form and void or empty and you beam sound into that it will produce light it's called sonoluminescence sound produces light whoa and that picture that i have right there that little teeny spot that's a little dot that's actually a glowing light you can see it with the naked eye it's been reproduced dozens of times in the lab light is produced by sound and so that takes on a whole new meaning when god says let there be light yeah he spoke light into existence by sound
0: oh holy cow well and this because i'm a guy who believes that within each one of us there is something left over of our Father. Right, there there is there is something there, there's a spark of divinity within each one of us that, that we inherited from our father.
1: And I think you're gonna be blown away when we get to the part about Christ walking on water and yeah. why Peter was able to do it for a minute.
0: This idea of speaking something into existence. There have been people I have come across in in usually in work when everything and it's something i've tried to emulate really hard but when all the chips are down and things look just bleak they're able just to keep talking up this plan right maybe make a few tweaks to the plan or whatever but keep talking up that plan and somehow with those guys it always comes to fruition i can't explain it but this might be one of those things they they're, they're this idea of water to light, speaking something into existence, that, that really resonates with me.
1: So here's the thing. There's actually, in Moses 6.63, he says, all things testify of him, right? And right. so you can pretty much look for anything that God does. There's always going to be a testifier of it somewhere in the natural world. And there's a little pistol shrimp that actually does that. He snaps his claws so hard that it creates a spark of light. <laughs> okay, so he's actually got it tuned. That the exact frequency and the snapping sound actually sparks light, and the spike of light produces four thousand degrees Celsius in that in that tiny moment.
0: whoo What is that in Fahrenheit? That's like
1: that would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of about forty five hundred, you know, five thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Something. Holy cow! This this is the thing is that there's enormous energy in that speaking light in there. And it's a frequency that is vibrating. And it's this bubble that is expanding and collapsing called cavitation that's producing this light and this heat energy.
0: Holy cow.
1: Look at this when you consider Matthew chapter 5 verses 16 through 18. And this is again. In the JST version, you won't won't read it quite this way in the King James version. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be a light, be the light of the world. That's what's the big, big difference. I give unto you to be the light of the world. This is he speaking to us. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Behold, do men light a candle to put it under a bushel? Nay, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before this world that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this, this kind of concept of what light is and speaking light into existence, what does that mean when it says, I give unto you to be a light? Speak truth and light into existence. Ooh. And
0: see, that, that all of a sudden really puts all of us on the hook in, in, in a very profound way, right? In that how we funny. talk to other people, and how we talk about other people.
1: Yeah, wow. I Joseph, mean, Joseph Smith said that we will be accountable for every idle word we speak. And I'm going to show you a little later as we go through the book how important it is to pay attention to the word. Because in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Right. So the Word is incredibly powerful, speaking truth and speaking the Word. We truly need to control our tongues.
0: Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm kind of without words when I start thinking about all the, uh, the 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 total ramifications of that little bit of knowledge, right? I'm thinking about how far it stretches in terms of, again, just how we communicate with other people around us. Right. And the effects it has. Uh, That's, you know, it's a bit of divinity that was left to us that the Savior expounded upon in in, in Matthew there. For sure. But with that and with that knowledge, there comes a certain sense of responsibility now. We have to be very cognizant i think of what we say and and especially how we talk to our brothers and sisters yep so moving on the next
1: section we talk about lightsabers lasers and majors. everybody loves lightsabers right
0: dude i'm gonna be honest with you i was just at disneyland this last week (laughs) and uh I may have spent a little bit more than I should have. Me and my oldest, me, me and one of my my middle boy, we went in and we made a couple of lightsabers. I totally geeked out. I'm not gonna lie. There's That's pictures awesome. on Facebook, but yeah, no, we, uh, yes, as dudes, we all like them. We can say uh, we I'll don't. I'll have
1: to check it out. I've actually never been to Disneyland, and so, um, I, I know other people. I have a couple of kids that went, but I'm, I'm not. Disneyland is not the place that we wanted to go, and so we just. We don't go there, but I get lightsabers. Lightsabers are pretty cool. I think it would be fun to have one, and I love lasers. So this is a discussion about how the laser was invented and what its purpose was. And why does that have to do with water? Because when the laser was first invented, it was actually called a maser, which is just a, a way of energizing particles. And this is before the space program existed, just after World War II. And uh, 1953, 1954, when this is invented, and what they did is they used this to look out into space and detect these hydrogen masers or emitters of energy. And what this this technology did is it allowed them to see that there is these out in the out in space. They just dis- they discovered that these water masers are actually emitting energy. And the story is about how in the fall of 1968, these amplifiers were all set up and they noticed that there's so much water coming from the Orion star cloud. They published an article said it must be raining in Orion. Now, the Orion star cloud is where the baby stars are being born. and And so this whole discussion about how that all happened is a beautiful story about how the testimony of water in space is about to be unfolded to us scientifically and most of it is still not understood it's it's truly magnificent when you see it and you got to you just think man how could we possibly have missed this and that actually leads to the next chapter chapter 2 is water everywhere in space that's a lot what we talk about in the universal model but in this book i just talk about what these little the solar spectrum means and how they actually detected water on the sun. So, this is the science behind how we know there's actually water on the sun. This is the wall, the, the poly, the, the molecule, the water molecule. We're not talking about just in some crystalline, this is actual water, H2O, on the sun. That,
0: I'm still trying to write, we've talked about this before. But I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Like, how does that water not evaporate with that kind of heat? I mean, it still boggles my mind.
1: So we, we do. We kind of just take a little quick tour around the solar system about the the moons and Mars and the evidence of Hydro Valley on Mars. And, you know, what we know about that now, all the different planets, moons like this right here is a hydro fountain, water exploding from saturn's sun i'm sorry saturn's moon Enceladus. now i don't want to spend a lot of time on this because that's the science i kind of want to jump right into what the scriptures say this is about it's a testimony of jesus christ so yeah there's science there but the science is just helping us understand that what's going to happen now in 1843 joseph smith Said the following about the events that surround the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he made this prophecy and he says, Judah must return, Jerusalem must be rebuilt, the temple and water come out from under the temple, the waters of the dead sea be healed, and it will take some time to rebuild this the walls of the city and the temple. And the son of before the son of man will make his appearance, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But he says, The people, he says, what will the world do? They will say, oh, it's a planet or a comet. Mm -hmm. So when the world is going to think that this is a comet or a planet that's coming, when all of these things happen, so the world's going to see that. He said that. The world will say it's a planet or a comet. And then we talk about, like, for example, in 1910, there was a comet that appeared so bright that you could see it in the day. In the daytime sky. And anyway, so we just kind of relate that to what the Prophet Joseph said, and then I want to get back into the scriptures part of, of water in the Garden of Eden. Okay. Okay. Now I'm moving a little bit quick. If you want, of course, the stories in the book.
0: Yeah, well, we don't want to we don't want to spoil the book, Russ.
1: Right. But we want to talk about in the Garden of Eden, the Creator watered everything without rain. He caused a mist from the earth to water the whole face of the ground. So that means we need to understand what produces the mist. It's got to either be heat that causes it to evaporate or vaporize, or it's got to be just pushed out aerosol in some way. And so we have a discussion about that. But then we lead into how does water itself water trees that are 300 feet tall. Now, the tallest trees in the world today are the Giant sequoias—they're about three hundred feet—but in the Garden of Eden, they were bigger, and we know that because the fossils that existed in the flood show that trees were considerably bigger. Wow! the flood. So, what's
0: considerably?
1: Um, at least three to four times bigger in diameter than the biggest trees we've seen. There's petrified trees I've seen, petrified logs that are sixty feet. Oh. Cool. Okay, so, so there there were big trees, big leaves, everything was big before the flood. Things are smaller now than they were. Right. Animals, trees, even the people were considerably bigger. The, the Jaredites, for example, right. right after the flood, they were a much bigger people than we are today. So this is there the discussion about how the trees have this microscopic xylem, which actually causes the water. climb all the way to the top of that tree in other words water is doing the work now if you're thinking of christ as the you know if we think of a water as a testimony of christ water is doing the work of watering the tall trees water is doing the work of taking care of and hydrating the earth and our bodies think of that in everything we talk about in the book this is the testimony of christ caring for every tiny
0: detail okay so so yeah when when christ says something to the effect of you know don't don't worry about tomorrow i i got tomorrow worry about today what you'll do today that that kind of carries over to that yes and I, the
1: water is a testimony of that and so i'm, I'm kind of moving again you know the, the details can, can come out we're going to cover some cool stuff and i don't want to miss that But the water in paradisical Eden was not limited to the mist that went up in the earth. Because in Genesis chapter 2, it says, I, the Lord God, caused a river to go out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. So the origin or the source of the water on earth as a river is the Garden of Eden.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: That's the source. That's the. Yep. We're not high up on a mountain. We're here on the Garden of Eden, and and the and the Lord is sending the water out in four different directions to water the whole earth.
0: Right.
1: Okay. So this isn't artesian-fed water. It's not from some rain system that's being recharged. This is water from the earth that's coming up and flowing out onto the earth, beginning in the Garden of Eden. This is the source or the origin of the living water okay. wow keep keep that pattern in mind the origin of the living water and we'll we'll get into that a little bit more so there are two named trees in the garden of eden you know what they are no tree well, of life
0: well yeah the tree, tree of tree life knowledge. and the tree of what
1: tree of life and the tree of knowledge right okay adam was commanded not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And he was commanded only because in the day that you do, you will bring death into the garden. Right. Okay, so in the, uh, the prophet Ezekiel actually saw the healing properties of the water that came out of the temple that's gonna be built in the garden where the Garden of Eden is in the latter days. This healing properties of the waters, it, wherever it goes, it heals the land and it transforms the desert and causes life within to flourish. Okay, so this water is really powerful stuff. And it says, This is in Ezekiel, it says, wheresoever the rivers come shall live, and there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come there, and everything they touch will be healed. Everything that this water that's going to come out of the temple and built in New Jerusalem is going to have this healing power revelations 21 says that i am alpha and omega the beginning and the end i will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely Mm. revelations at the very end promising the water that is first is we've got the two things tying water together right and that that brings us to why it's important because the temple lot that joseph dedicated is where the temple is going to be built and where the water is going to issue out and Back at the
0: source the,
1: the temple lot is actually sitting atop some beautiful pristine clear water that's going to come out of the ground somewhere that is now we have the temple lot identified there but it actually could be within 250 feet of somewhere. We don't know exactly where, when they found the stone, it wasn't where it was originally laid, but it was within 250 feet.
0: Gotcha. Holy cow. So now, now my mind is buzzing right now. I'm thinking of Moses striking the rock and the water issuing forth. I am, you know, Jesus teaches by the well, you know, the, the Samaritan woman, um yeah i just every one I, of I, those
1: every single one of those are in this book in the order that they need to appear and i'm going to show it to you here in a minute okay so we're going to go to the next step here and that is that they they take of the free of life they're cast out and god gives them something interesting he says by the sweat of your face you are going to earn your bread right right so you've been cast out By the sweat of your face. But what does that actually mean? Well, Christ never calls himself the water, but he says, I'm the source of the water. We're going to come up to that in a minute. But he also says to you, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a mark of life. Okay. I'm I'm working on the next book. The sequel to this is salt. Okay. Because this is a testimony of Christ. Salt is a testimony and story of life on earth so if you think of this is in your body first of all what is sweat sweat is a combination of two things
0: salt and water
1: salt and water and what are those two things water is the holy ghost from christ which we'll learn here in a minute and salt is man so living by the sweat of your face is really combining man and the holy ghost okay so it's not just merely that you're sweating it is an allegory or a parable of living by the holy ghost as a mortal man
0: okay all right so so (laughs) and again tying it back just something that popped into my mind that makes sense where it says god says you won't live by bread alone likewise this idea of just working hard might not be enough we need inspiration in order to get done what we need to get do, and that's where the holy ghost comes into play in that am i off base there
1: you are exactly on base i just need to make a note of that too because what you just gave me is that piece i was looking for something that connection there because when he says you shall not live by bread alone he says you're going to eat the bread by the sweat of your face not eating by bread alone means that and because the follow-up is you shall live by everywhere that proceeded forth from the mouth of god right and that proceeds forth out of the mouth of god it proceeds forth as water and so you know doing that is saying you cannot just live by work like you said you got to have both of them together right now there's a science behind how salt is made in your body when you eat food it goes into your stomach critters in there enzymes are living and they convert that by producing hydrochloric acid they convert it into a chime and and what that does begins the dissolving process but they make hydrochloric acid And if you were to urinate hydrochloric acid, that would be pretty painful. Well, just outside the stomach is this duodenum and the pancreas. And the pancreas produces sodium hydroxide. And sodium hydroxide is, I won't get into the the chemical, but when you mix them together, it's like pouring baking soda on your battery. Okay. And what comes out of it is salt, water, and CO2. (laughs) your body is making all of the salt water that it needs it makes the salt water it doesn't take the salt in and makes its own wow now here's something even cooler this the body's cooling system actually is produced when the hypothalamus that's a small gland in the interior part of your brain it's like the most protected thing inside your brain and the hypothalamus sends a body to the signal to sweat but guess what else it does? That's the same place that brings pleasure to our to us. So the same thing that causes your body to sweat is the pleasure reward center in your brain.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And the the, the okay, so I'm I'm thinking here mainly just about the the physical aspects of it. <clears throat> This is probably a real good reason why they they encourage exercise and that sort of thing and even decreasing depression, right? Because if if the same mechanism is triggered for that reward um, system, so to speak, as it is to induce the body's cooling system, that would make perfect sense on why people who tend to be more active have less depression or tend to be happier more productive because you're triggering the same the same mechanism
1: exactly work is a powerful tool in improving your mood yep because the sweating they're both they're tied together yep so if you I, all i want you to do is can see this consistent pattern of how water is actually testifying of christ how every little step is saying this is my plan and by the way, I've been teaching you everything I teach you about parables and allegory, but I'm doing it in your bodies, too. I'm doing everything. Every lesson I'm teaching you is about the same thing. Now, here's another fun thing about saliva. Saliva is quite literally living water. Did you know that your saliva produces a material that is six times more powerful than morphine
0: what really
1: yep it's a because the saliva contains a powerful neutrophil it's a type of white blood cell that works with the body's immune system okay okay and this particular this orphan it's it's opio orphan opio orphan you've heard the opiates right
0: yep yep this is a
1: natural thing in your body it has a pain-killing effect it is greater than morphine. <laughs> uh, what Okay. Six, six times more powerful than morphine. Well, then, then,
0: uh, okay. So now I'm trying to wrap my head around. Why is it then that we still require painkillers if that's the case?
1: Well, you know, there's, there's a use for them, but here's the thing as we've been taught, you know, we've, we've this is the modern world and how we've kind of been hands off. The mother's saliva is the most effective immune builder for a new baby. Really? Why do you think when cows give birth, they lick the calf and they eat you know, and they and they just, they constantly clean it because the mother's saliva on the cow is the example. I'm not saying that women should start licking their babies and, you know, eating their stuff. Right. But the point is here is that the mothers and fathers too, it's it's you're creating a microbe. You, this baby is born without a microcosm of microbes inside their body, and mom is going to plant them. And so when the parent cleans their baby's pacifier by sucking it, that she's doing two things. One is she's cleaning it, and everything that was on that pacifier is now going into her system, where within seconds, the body begins to make all the white blood cells to fight off anything that was on it. And then at the same time, she's neutralized and cleansed that pacifier to give to the baby with her stuff. That's been planting the bacteria. So the baby can build an immune system like hers.
0: Right. Well, now I'm starting to wonder about echoes in, in time, right? Where did this idea of a mother kissing the wound of her child come from that brought so much comfort?
1: because it actually is planned right when she kisses that when she licks it when she puts her spit on them you know the kid gets his scratch and she puts spit on it she's actually treating it properly with a with a the perfect painkiller and also a a thing that's preserving it it's killing the microbes it's it's the perfect stuff it's nuts right it's like it's water that god created yeah for our bodies
0: i'm not gonna lie i still never enjoyed as a kid that thing your mom would do where she'd like lick her thumb and then wipe your face off before you went somewhere That still just irritated the the crap right out of me but, yeah, but
1: my then you were probably 10
0: yeah i was yeah i was like stop just knock it
1: off right so. So then we introduce living water. This is where Jesus Christ speaks of living water. It's the first time he speaks of this is when he's at the Samaritan well, or I mean at the Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman. Right. He's on his way to Galilee. And then he teaches her, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. See, he never says, I'm the living water. What he says is that whoso drinketh of the water that I give him, I'm the source of the living water. He later says the living water is actually the Holy Ghost. And we explain that where it shows that in there. Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit. He explains, he says, quote, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Gotcha. And this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was promised unto them who believe. Okay. So the Holy Ghost is the living water, right? That's why when you live by the sweat of your face, it's the living water of the Holy Ghost. And the salt of your life. That You're makes nothing every day by, with the Holy Ghost.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense now.
1: Okay, so now we're going to get into another thing that happened when the Garden of Eden, when they're cast out, we probably talked about this before. There were no tools of death to kill the animal, to make the hides, to make the leather clothes that covered their nakedness. Right. So the creator actually had to show him how to make stone tools to kill an animal. The creator himself had to cause the first death. He killed the first animal to make the coats of skins. Because Adam partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, the creator killed an animal to show him how you have to sacrifice that's that was literally bringing death into the world the creator brought death not in the in a, it didn't just naturally start to die he actually walked up to his creation his animal and killed it and cut its throat and bled it out <sighs> wow he, he showed adam how to do it he showed him how to make the tools he showed him how to cut the throat, how to skin that animal, how to cut it up and butcher it, how to scrape the hide, how to tan it. See, Adam didn't know how to do any of those things. Right. He needed an endowment of knowledge. That was the first endowment of knowledge. Hmm. And so the coat of skins, which represents the garment. Right is the first endowment of knowledge given to man by God on earth as a result of the fall. Wow. Makes sense. So so now let's tip it up the other way for a minute. Adam is commanded to, to offer this sacrifice and then after many days, the angel comes and asks him, why are you offering sacrifice? He says, I know not, except I was commanded. You remember hearing that? Yep. And then he says, it is a similitude after the son of God. So what happens here is Adam is actually killing an animal, spilling the blood to represent the blood of the savior that's going to save him. But what happens when he kills the animal? He gets bloody. It's a dirty job. Right. How does he clean himself? With water, So there's a parable. There's kind of a chiasmus parable of Adam has to kill the animal to get bloody and then has to go seek out clean water to cleanse himself of the blood and sins of this generation. Hmm. He has to literally do that. He has the priesthood and he has to clean himself of the blood of the generation that he lives in. And that's what Joseph Smith actually explains what the priesthood is, is the responsibility to be cleansed of the blood of this generation. The blood is literally started right there in the Garden of Eden. He had to clean himself physically from the blood right, of the sacrifice. Wow. It's
0: these little nuances that, that just I think we read hundreds, thousands of times and never pick up on these nuances.
1: And yet the gospel is, right, every single thing we do in the gospel is being, and and we're just in the first two chapters of Genesis, right, two, three chapters, and and we're being taught the gospel of everything in those first few chapters, and water stands as that testimony. This is the quote from Joseph Smith, that, Behold, how great is your calling. Cleanse your hearts and your garments, lest the blood of this generation be required of your hands oh dnc <laughs> 112 33
0: right mm. wow it's amazing that the the thread that that now seems to appear that connects <clears throat> old testament new testament book of mormon doctor the the whole thing right i mean it, it's it's always been there right i i feel like i've just been missing out russ
1: Well, I I just think the Lord gives us, you know, line upon line, right? Right. So the next chapter is the fountains of the great deep. And then this talks about the spiritual of what the flood means to us. And that kind of talks about how it breaks apart. We've talked about the flood is a big deal. I love, you know, I love talking about the flood and all that it means. And something that is, is, if we understand Enoch, right, Enoch is like, it just just kind of put yourself in this for a minute. Imagine that Enoch is the generation of Joseph Smith and Noah is the generation of who we are today. Because remember, it said that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming when the coming of the man, Son of Man comes, right? Right. So we need to then know what was in, going on in the days of Noah. What do what, we need to understand about that? And if we know that Noah looks back to his great-grandfather, now his father was Methuselah and his grandfather was Lamech and his you know and so we look back to his great-grandfather, Enoch is given this prophecy that it would be him. and he actually restores the gospel. Enoch is a restorer, right. And we know that Adam gathers his last posterity, Before Noah is born. Right. Noah's not there. So he gathers his lost posterity, gives them this blessing in Adam on Diamond. And Enoch finds his fire at that moment, somewhere along that time, and he begins to restore the gospel, gathering the people of Israel. And he does very something very similar to what Joseph Smith does. He's known as a wild man in the land. He's seeing receiving revelations, he's sending warnings about all these things that are happening. And then he also establishes a city of Zion, but the city is taken up. It's gone. What did Joseph do? He establishes a city of Zion, but it's gone. It never actually comes to fruition. And I think that's another example of this kind of chiasmus where Enoch is given a covenant that he shares that the Lord actually renews with Noah when he says, in the latter days, when my people turn their hearts to heaven, keep all of my commandments, then Zion will come again on the earth. Mm. Which which Zion. It's not just the city of Enoch, but Zion, as in Zion, right. that was already dedicated. Right. And so the pattern of what Enoch and his generations did to Noah is actually something we can look at what joseph smith has done with us but now
0: i'm just thinking here real quick russ isn't there prophecy that enoch from above will meet the or zion from above will meet zion from below right
1: well what he says is that that um he will look down okay when the he's in the part of that prophecy and it's in uh I think it's Genesis chapter 9. But he says, when they look up, then Zion will look down and will come again on the earth. Okay. So here's, you know, what what I like to draw attention to is the patterns. You know, you you have to kind of look at the patterns of what these are, because everything is testifying of Christ. Everything that's happening is testifying of Christ and his mission. And what is, and then, for example, think about when Jesus Christ was 12 years old and he went into the temple and he said to his parents, when they found him, he says, Wish ye not that I be about my father's business. What is his father's business? What is the family business?
0: To bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man.
1: Exactly. That's the father, that's the family business. So everything. That Enoch did everything that Noah did, everything that Abraham did, everything that Joseph Smith has done, everything that every prophet has done has been engaged in the work of bringing capacity, immortality, and eternal life of man. That's family business, right? So every, every single thing is going to tie back and forward. Gotcha. And all we have to do is start to find the things that tie. How do what? what's the string that connects Enoch? To Joseph Smith and you know for example here's another really cool thing that when you think about God gives Moses the creation story Joseph Smith meets Moses in the Kirtland temple so there's a connection here from God to Moses to Joseph to translated the, the inspired version We're reading the work of a man who's met the man who actually was given the story by the creator. That is just,
0: (laughs) it it just seems to bring it full circle, right? I mean, it's, it's wow. It's like the, it's like the origin story and the end game all wrapped up in one.
1: Here's a fun little thing is that if you can imagine the sound That might have happened during the flood, right? It's the second month of the year, the 17th day, according to the calendar, handed down from the fathers. The earth begins to shake. Mm. Simultaneously, the sun is darkened. The sky is erupting with lightning. The crack and the boom, the roar of thunder. The earth is raging and convulsing. Water is spewing explosively into the atmosphere. Nobody has ever experienced anything like this. There's never been major thunderstorms. There's never been whirlwinds. There's never been tornadoes or hurricanes. Nothing like this has ever happened on earth. And you have these instant moments of instant cold and instant wind and instant everything, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I had read, I I shouldn't say read, I think I'd watched something put out by an evangelical trying to prove Noah's flood. And he describes it and he said, well, based on, you know, how we know weather reacts today, if it came out this way. And it was it's very similar to, to kind of the model you're talking about here where water erupts. He said you could have expected to see everything from hurricanes to earthquakes to typhoons to tornadoes in moments, in moments. So you went from this idyllic. You know, we know there was still death and that sort of thing in in the world at that point, but nothing like what they saw in a split second. Right. The horror that people must have felt in that moment as that all came to fruition.
1: Well, there was great fear in the ark too. The animals Mm -hmm. were in fear, everybody, because it, it was complete darkness for 40 days. Right. was complete darkness now let me give you in the book i talk about this is a footnote on um, on page 76 a jet engine produces about 130 to 180 decibels okay a rock concert produces between 90 and 120 sounds that are over 80 decibels are injurious to human ears 150 decibels can burst your eardrums 185 decibels can actually impact your body's internal organs. (laughs) Okay? Okay. A nuclear bomb can produce between 240 and 280 decibels. Wow. But the sound of the earthquakes during the flood would have been 300 or higher.
0: Jeez. And... Um,
1: the loudest can... sound ever experienced on earth happened on August 27th, 1833, when the Indonesian island of Krakatoa exploded with a noise that was estimated at 310 decibels.
0: And, and to me, that makes perfect sense. So right before COVID, Salt Lake had a pretty decent sized earthquake. I think it was 5.5 or 5.7. I was at work when it happened. I was in downtown Salt Lake. And I was sitting in my office. And I heard it before I felt it, because at first I was like, "Is somebody driving a truck inside this building?" And then I saw a Prius hopping on the road, and I was like, "Nope, that's an earthquake." So, I can, I can kind of,
1: yeah, I can see it. All right, so I'm going to skip ahead the the uh, um hypertherm and the different lakes because I want to get to the dividing of the Red Sea. This is the story of Moses and the Exodus, right? Right. There's some really cool stuff about this story. First of all, Moses himself is actually placed in an ark. So he's the deliverer that is placed in an ark. And Noah is the one who carries the people across the waters on an ark. And what is the third ark that we know of? The ark of the covenant.
0: Of the covenant, yep.
1: So these three are actually pretty interestingly connected. Moses is actually connected because he crosses the waters to get to where he is to Pharaoh and he grows up and right and then later when he actually comes back and starts to lead the people out there's there's a lot of really cool stuff here to think about so the first miracle that is performed by God in the court of Pharaoh is the serpent right What's the first thing that happened in the Garden of Eden? The serpent. Yeah. Eve. Okay. And then if we look at the next miracle after that, it is turning the water to blood. Mm. When Christ performs his first miracle, what does he do?
0: Turns water into wine.
1: Exactly. So you, you're almost like seeing a mirror from Old Testament to New Testament. And... It goes on to, to emphasize that in the final miracle where they have to paint the post of the doorpost with the blood of the Lamb. Right. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Th-
0: this thing about what you just said about, you know, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I was thinking the same thing with the flood, right? The earth starts out without shape and just water. Right. And it's almost like during the flood, God is saying, "I got to take it back to its foundation we'll yeah, just the
1: flood. the flood is an amazing creation event
0: right we'll just we'll just take it back to where we started from, so to speak, and go forward because there was like you just said, there was darkness for forty days, you know and and the Lord said it was dark and and moved upon the waters i find it fascinating this this idea of going back to the beginning so to speak
1: okay so now we're talking about walking through the sea on dry ground right right do you find it interesting that the guy who meets the creator who writes the entire creation story then gets to physically reproduce that day three of creation where the waters are gathered together and the dry land appears (laughs) and he gets to recreate it and witness the waters gathered together and the dry land appears
0: oh that's so fascinating yeah and and i think this will speak to the miraculous nature of of it a little bit more because i i'm going back through the old testament now now i've I'm past Moses a little ways, but one of the things that dawned on me as I was doing this new study of, of the Old Testament was not only was were the waters parted, but in order for Israel to cross, that ground had to have been dry, Russ.
1: Right. It says they crossed on dry ground.
0: Right. It's not like it's a bog, right? So we're not talking just about the waters parting and, you know, there's this pat, muddy path. It was dry ground. And I, as you were just saying, the idea of, of the dry land coming forward, you know, coming forth. It, it's just, yeah, and Moses gets to witness essentially a portion of the story that was told to him by God.
1: Mm-hmm. Early on, you mentioned about how water was in rock, right? Right. This is actually where Moses strikes the rock because right after they leave, they're they're thirsty and they don't know what to do. And so God tells Moses, meet me at the rock of Horeb and I will show you there. Okay, I'm going to show you forth my glory. So he actually does. He strikes the rock. It brings forth water and that's great. Well, about two, three years later, they're now in Kadesh, which is near Jordan, and God tells Moses to go speak to the rock. So the first time is a physical event. But the second time is a verbal event. He tells him to go speak to the rock. But Moses in his frustration says, he gets so upset because of the chiding of the children of Israel. And he says to them here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock?
0: Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to MormonRenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page. Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. Say that again. So, so Moses tells them, hey, you got to go. I'll fetch you water, you rebels, out of this rock.
1: Yeah, this is in Numbers, in uh, Numbers uh, chapter 20. And he says, here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? But then instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it. And so he has the power, so water comes out. But God is displeased with him because he falters. He got so upset, he struck the rock, and was prevented from going into the promised land because he didn't show the power of the word.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And I'm going back also to this idea, like we talked about at at the beginning here, this idea of the word, right? yeah speaking things into existence and apparently moses had got to a point where the lord felt he was ready to exercise that kind of of power through speaking it into existence
1: yeah and actually i think he wanted to show the people right show the people the power the brother of jared this is in ether chapter 12 it says the brother of jared said to the mountain zaron remove and it was removed and if he had not faith it would not have moved right wow okay now let me blow your mind a little bit okay every single instance of commanding these things has been about water right why do you think then he could have caused the mountain to move (laughs)
0: because it sat on water
1: because it is made of water the water the rocks themselves were formed in water and they're water in rocks literally okay when Moses strikes the rock, what comes out? Water, because the rocks themselves are binding up water right. You can command a mountain, and all you got to do is command the water in that mountain. the mountain will move right. Enoch was actually how Enoch, you know how Enoch fought the enemies in his day by commanding the rivers to turn themselves out of their course,
0: mm. That's why I'm thinking to the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord talks about stemming the mighty you know, Missouri River or whatever. He's, he's making a point there.
1: Exactly. And so that brings us back to the science behind how much water is in rocks. Right. This is, see, here's the science behind that. We just have a discussion about that, right? Yep. How much water, how much lava came out of Mount St. Helens? Right. No lava, all water. Yep. Helens is a water volcano, and then here's an example of water that we actually took a rock right here, rhyolite, volcanic rock, and out of this 740 gram rock, we got 24 grams of water. Cool. A Softball sized rock and half a shot glass of water. Wow. When we can tap into that, that's going to cause the desert to blossom like a rose. Yeah hasn't fully blossomed like a rose So yeah salt lake's grown and yeah Israel's is green but it's because we're pumping water out and drying up our aquifers truly drive from salt lake to california and see how much desert there still is go ahead and drive you know take the west desert gun down, down through delta and see how much greenery there is
0: i've been on both of those places very recently
1: the desert hasn't blossomed like a rose like i think it's going to and it's right. going to be because we're, we will know how to bring the water out directly out of rock. And we talk about that in here. And right here, I actually met with this guy. I had lunch with him today that does this passive seismicity. They're drilling wells in Cedar City. They've actually got primary water technology working on extracting water from crystalline rock. This is a technology that the guy actually believes the Bible. And he actually believes what the universal model is talking about, how the water is down in the earth. And we just have to tap into, like he said today, it's kind of a little bit like acupuncture of the earth. We're not not drawing out these big aquifers. We're literally tapping into the tiny fractures that God has created that the water accumulates to. And it's an endless supply of water. There yes. are wells that have been drilled for this type of a technology for 200 years. They never dry up in the times of drought because they're not pulling from aquifers. They're, they're primary water, water that is pristine, that is trapped in, in raw.
0: So let, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> because talking about making the deserts blossom like a rose and whatnot, Is this somewhat of an indictment on us as Mormons for not understanding a little bit these frequencies that that we talk about, like the crab that can produce sound and tapping into a little bit of that divinity and being able to do this?
1: I think it's um, an injunction against all Christians that are believers, because what we've treated The Bible and different people and different groups have caught obviously different. We've treated the Bible as this book that we should read that'll give us some good ideas about how to live good. And then we go out in the world and we think that we have to go to school and read secular atheistic stuff to run our businesses and to set up our farms and to, to manage our everything. And we don't need to do that. We need to get back to scriptures and we need to actually say, this is God's word. Let's, let's find out how God's word works with the earth, and then let's go ask him to show us how, speaking water into rocks. And let's, let's understand it. Let's research it instead of thinking about what man can know. You know, you've heard the word enlightenment, right? Right. The enlightenment, that's what the Renaissance was, was an enlightenment. But whenever you hear the word enlightenment, that means man finally is smarter than God. We don't need God anymore. We finally got enough enlightenment that we don't need him anymore. So anytime you hear the word enlightenment, whether it's the French enlightenment or the Scottish enlightenment, every single time that is saying man is smarter than God. Right. And we need to not think that. Let's go Let's go talk to God. Let's find out his plan and his path. And let's listen to what he talks about with water. Let's, let's listen to what he's telling us. Like everything I'm quoting in here is is scriptural and then looking at it from a scientific point of view. Right. So the next part is we talk about living water. There's a really, really wonderful story about the book, The Heavenly Man. It's about a Chinese Christian pastor that is a pastor during the most, you know, during when you can't have be a Christian. This is in the 1980s, so it's recent. And it's about his story of being a Christian doesn't have a Bible prays for a year for a Bible and then magically three guys show up and say hey, this was sent you a Bible because God wanted you to have a Bible
0: <sighs>
1: so he takes the Bible and he memorizes the whole thing so when they take it away he can still go preach to the people. Wow that's the kind of commitment that we need to look at is you know what are they doing and his wife she suffered suffers from hemophilia. And because she converts to Christianity, she's given a dream that this water will pure will cleanse her feet, and it does, and she never has it again. (sighs) Those are the stories of healing, and they're in our time, they're not back in the you know, Adam's time. This is real time, 1980s stuff that can give us the example about what we need to do today, and how we can begin to heal our hearts and prepare for. Things like the healing of the Dead Sea. Wow. And that's that's sort of bringing us now full circle. We're back to the temple lot here. When Joseph actually draws the plot map for the temple in New Jerusalem, he puts 24 temples in it. Right. Here's another fun thing is that the this is the great laver, the molten sea. That was the large basin located in the southeast corner of the inner court of Solomon's temple. Yep. Okay. And it's got the oxen. This is the temples that we build today are representative of that. Yep. But this thing held twenty three thousand gallons of water.
0: <laughs> Hope those oxen were strong.
1: <laughs> they were brass. Okay, this is a fun chapter. Chapter nine is "Be Not Afraid." It's the discussion about Christ walking on the water. Wow. And this leads us to an understanding about what we are. We're we are ninety nine percent. By molecules, 99% water. Now, there's actually three things I like to quote, and they're all depending on what you're doing. Okay. For example, the number of cells in your body are about 90% non human and only 10% human cells. So, most of you, Dave, is foreign, you know, foreign nationals living on your body, like bacteria and viruses all the stuff that's happening in your body that you survive on because you have all this symbiotic relationship of all these things living in you you
0: just officially creep me out
1: i just you, you are 90% illegal aliens
0: thanks man you know there's certain times i don't need to see the sausage being made that was probably one of them
1: that was it right there
0: yeah that was it right there russ <laughs> no that is fascinating i have heard that before though
1: now, by weight, you are 90% water because the cells and the organisms that are living on you, the bacteria and the vac- all the other stuff that is symbiotic with you is still made of water. So 70% of you, including all of your other non, you know, uh, non illegal aliens, 70% of you approximately is water by weight, right. but by molecules you are 99.9% H2O. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The number of molecules in your body, because H2O or that water molecule is one of the smallest molecules in all of creation. It's tiny. You can hold uh, trillions, trillions of molecules in a single tiny drip of water on a pinhead. Trillions of molecules in one little drop. Okay, so by numbers you are an unfathomable ba- amount of, of water molecules, right? Right. So once you kind of get that in your head, and it takes a minute to kind of digest that, well, what happens when water is exposed to light, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, you need to read this, because you have to kind of digest this, but there is a moment where water actually organizes itself in a crystalline structure even though it's liquid, it organizes itself in this crystalline structure to where it creates surface tension and you can walk on it. It actually is what holds ships up. And you can break it by churning up the water and making it wild and woolly. Right. You do that, for example, when they, um, let's see this ski jump here, this in chapter nine, when the ski jumpers in the summer are practicing their jumps, they go down this plastic ski jump and land in a pool. But if the water is not being churned tur- uh, up, they would break their legs when they land it. Because water is like concrete when you land on it. Right. Unless they bubble it. And that breaks the surface tension. Okay. The surface tension is actually created because of light, infrared light.
0: Really? So, the, so the light comes in okay all right i got you
1: okay so there's a this phase of water this and it talks to you know i don't want to get lost in the in the weeds on this right structured water or this this water that creates this um this zone they used to think it was only one or two molecules thick that created this surface tension to where it would hold something like you could float a little paper clip or something, right, right. But it turns out that this water, the structured water is like three feet or more three meters even thick. And that's what's holding ships. It's not the top. It's not just buoyance or displacement. It's actually surface tension. And they've done an experiment where if they boil the water, they can sink a ship, just bubbling the water, because they break the surface tension, and it can't hold and it'll the ship will sink. Really? You can look it on YouTube. They actually did an experiment where they sunk a boat by bubbling the water. (laughs) So when you think of that, Christ is walking on this water because he has the power of light. Now let's talk about you. If you shut down all the lights, you went in a dark room, turned all the lights off. You can't see any light, but you actually are emitting light you and i are beings of light
0: right our,
1: our eyes can't see it but the infrared spectrum we are actually emitting light energy and that energy is what creates structured water and that's why peter could walk on it until he got scared wow
0: and and again this I, i'm just thinking about the ramifications right just thinking about maybe We've sold ourselves short a little bit here, right in in the sense of what what we could really be capable of if we were really doing the will of the Father, if our will was really turned to him,
1: I absolutely agree, okay, so now in chapter ten, you can see how we've kind of moved through you know through the gospel and when our how how can rolling water remain impure? This is chapter ten. Do you know who asked that question?
0: It's Joseph Smith, right?
1: The Lord asked Joseph Smith. The
0: Lord asked Joseph Smith in Liberty. It was when Joseph was in Liberty jail, correct?
1: Exactly. And so Joseph is actually crying out this prayer, but the Lord says, How long can rolling waters remain impure? And this is an example to talk to him about what it means to be engaged in being, being rolling water. Okay. But there's even more to that same thing. And this is another one of those pretty cool things that we just kind of didn't think about, right? The opposite of rolling water is what? Still water. Stagnant water. Right. And stagnant water is what breeds all of the, the miasmas that gets us sick. It's where mosquitoes breed. It's where cholera breeds. And Joseph experienced cholera. One night, they were on the Zion's camp march. And in one night, Twelve o'clock at night, we began to hear the cries of those had been seized. Even those on guard fell with their guns in their hands. And we had to exert ourselves considerably to attend to the sick, for they were stricken on every hand. This is on Zion's camp after Joseph had warned the men to stop quarreling or the destroyer would come after us. And that night they were struck with cholera. Wow. Nineteen people died.
0: Ooh.
1: Or thirteen, I'm sorry, thirteen people. And then there's a discussion about the Aswan Dam where they dammed the Nile River in Egypt and what it did, it ruined the ecosystem. Right. Because it created stagnant water. And this is to leave us, kind of lead us, help us understand that about moving water and about how it's purified. But here's the only way that you can actually get pure water. You can boil water, but to get pure water, you boil it until it. you collect the distilled water, right? Right. So in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, the same place when he says, how long can rolling water remain impure? Then later on, he said that, he said, if you exercise kindness and pure knowledge, filling our bowels with charity towards all men and to the household of the faith, with our thoughts garnished with virtue unceasingly, our confidence shall wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill mm. on the soul as the dew from heaven. So the opposite end of the question of how long can rolling water remain here all the way to the distilled water of the doctrine of the priesthood.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, wow. And all in section 121.
0: Uh. This, this thing about rolling water, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, I want everyone to fact check me on this, but if I'm not mistaken, in order for someone to convert to Judaism, I think there is kind of a baptism that happens. But I think, the, I think what they said is it has to be natural water that is in commotion. So like a river... Or something like that, right? Again, this this idea of pure water because it's flowing. It's not stagnant. It's moving.
1: Well, sure. And if you remember in the story in the New Testament where Jesus comes to the man and he's been sitting by the edge waiting for the water to be disturbed. Because cool. it's still yeah. only yep. heals when it's moving. Yep he's been waiting for it to move and then the living water Christ, comes the source of the living water comes along and heals him yeah yeah wow okay here's another fun one the water to wine yeah everybody loves this one right so christ this is the moment when christ actually actually does the thing that he, he announces who he is. He actually performs the thing that makes, and he manifests his glory in this moment. Now he's done healing before, but this is the moment he manifests his glory. Okay. Right. And I'm not actually stating that just because I'm saying it. It's scripture. It, the scripture is, um, is quote manifest forth his glory. Right. This is the moment that it happens. And I had a really cool experience when I'm writing this. I'm, I'm just kind of writing a summary. Fill the water pots with water, instructed Jesus, referring to the six stone water pots to the marriage feast that was in full swing in Cana of Galilee. His mother had approached him when the wine for the feast had run out early during the celebration. And although Jesus had healed many people and by this time had gathered many followers, he had yet to manifest his glory. It was his mother who requested Jesus to perform the unction that would mark the beginning of his incredible ministry. Now, the word unction, you've heard of that every day, right? Not I, really. I'd never heard of it before. Not really. When I was writing this, that word was put there. And I thought, I don't even know what unction is. I got to look it up. And this is what unction means, okay? So I'm. I'm. this is, for me, it was a really cool experience because I didn't know what the word was or how to use it, but it had been put there for me. So I look it up. Unction is the action of anointing someone as a symbol of investiture as a monarch.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So this is this represents Jesus' divine investiture. Right. Anyway, I, I that was just a cool that moment. That is
0: fascinating. The fact that you were inspired to put that word there wow and and not knowing what it meant too russ you had to go look it up and then be like oh i
1: see that's why the lord picked it yep anyway christ uses wine he uses vineyards he uses all of these things through the scriptures right right because we kind of have a little bit of a um, i think we have a little bit of a idea what wine is that it's a stigma that we don't know if we want to talk about this now you know some divergent groups are okay with wine others are not and so wine is kind of a little discussed thing but the winemaking process is the story of it's the story of of life on earth It's, it's salvation and here's what i mean by that okay when you think about The one time that Christ says that you should, he tells Joseph, you should have wine of your own make. Now, think think of wine of your own make when I go through this little scenario for a minute, okay? Okay. So wine is an expression of where it comes from. It's influenced by the soil, the sun, the environment, and the governor at the Feast of Cana, he knew this. So he would have been familiar with all the wines around in the area, except he had no idea where this came from. He even said that from... From where did this come? And nobody knew, except the servants, of course. So how does this work? Well, the winemaking process starts long before the grapes are harvested. And it's because of the soil. And you right. can't, you actually have to take two to three years to prepare the soil. You have to make it living soil. And you can do that by planting grasses and legumes. Now, what did they do in the creation, back in the creation? Plants and animals are preparing the soil, not animals, sorry. Plants, the grasses and the things are preparing the soil to become living soil.
0: Right. So
1: to have a vineyard, you actually have to prepare living soil, the microbial vigor. Sunflowers can break it up so you don't have to do any tilling, no mechanical tilling. So this process of planting different crops can actually break the soil, prepare and get it ready, right?
0: Right. Right.
1: And then, once the soil is prepared, then it takes three years for the grapevines to grow before they can produce fruit. So you're talking five or six years before you get any fruit.
0: It's an investment.
1: It's it an investment,
0: especially in the old world. That's an, that's a massive investment because they don't have they don't have a lot of leisure time. A lot of them are living hand to mouth. So that's that's quite an investment.
1: Now we read in the in the Old Testament about how when Noah came out. That he is drunk with this wine of the vineyard, that one of the first things they do is they plant a vineyard. The vineyard goes all the way through everywhere, through the whole scriptures. And in reality, young men and young women have to establish their roots in soil prepared for them to grow too, right? And then pruning, pruning, poorly pruned vines will not produce good quality fruit. Think about this principle and applies to our environment and in our homes. We should prune our media prune our libraries prune our entertainment right anyway so once the soil and the vines break first they burst with vigor and they and they finally set there's a period called verasion and that's when the beauty of the grape is revealed that's when everything turns now here's what's interesting harvest has to be done by hand so you don't bruise the grape okay and you have to carefully either you're going to go crush it right so right, wine is a living substance requiring carefully maintained heat and pressure to fully properly develop. Too much heat, too little heat, and you're ruined, Maybe even in your own life. If you have too much pressure heat, what happens? We give up. Right. So the Lord carefully orchestrates our lives as if we are the vineyard. And he refers to us in the vineyard sense. And he's carefully mm-hmm. curating this. And these challenges and trials of heat and cold and things are perfectly balanced to bring us to our best selves. He's he's in modern winemaking, they add yeast. But did you know that yeast occurs naturally on the grape so that when the grape is going through the fermenting process, it already has the yeast microbes in it?
0: I did know that. I I did. I have a buddy back in Idaho who who grows vineyards. But yeah, he was he was telling me about that this this parable so to speak where the lord has to apply just the right amount of heat just the right amount of pressure in order to extract the best from us i think that's something that to be quite honest sometimes it it sucks in the moment right because it could feel like our whole world is crashing around us and it's so hard to remember but in those moments i think we got to go back to god and, and just ask what what is it you're trying to get from me what am i trying to, what what do i need to learn here i love the analogy
1: this next sentence is you know and this is probably my favorite sentence in the whole book for me if i can have one of my own writing
0: oh absolutely
1: and it's this the wine press is an important symbol of the gospel of jesus christ and of his life for the vintner, the wine press is the place where the fruit is broken so that the blood of the grape can flow. Mm-hmm. And I have I have this right under a picture of Christ on the cross, and the way the painter has orchestrated it, he's he's trotting the wine press, uh, you right. know, but he's he's attached to the cross, right? And and that just I don't know it's. I mean, he's breaking the the grape so that the blood of that grape can flow, and it just
0: oh, it's so it's yeah, it really is a beautiful analogy. And
1: this is what Isaiah said about Christ. Christ told him when he gave him this prophecy, "I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me." And then he reiterated this to the prophet Joseph Smith, speaking of the last days, he said. These are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of almighty God until the fullness of times when Christ shall have subdued all his enemies under his feet and shall have perfected his work. When he shall deliver up the kingdom and present to the father spotless saying, I have overcome and have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God.
0: Takes on new significance.
1: And then there's more about um, the wine in new bottles and that, and how. And then this, chapter 11 is crossing the waters. There's so many things. You know, the word Hebrew in the Hebrew language, the root letters actually mean to cross over or to pass through. These are a people of crossings. Yeah. Crossings of the water everywhere. The brother of Jared. And so that's kind of what we talk about. The, the crossing of the Jordan, when the people and Moses leaves, The children of Israel are ready to cross the Jordan River, and it's during the flood stage. And God tells Joshua, I'm going to show you that I'm with you, just like I was with Moses. And he says, have the people take the Ark of the Covenant and go stand in the water. And when they do, I'm going to cause the waters to back up. And it says the waters pushed all the way up, and they stood up as a wall. And all of Israel passed over dry ground on the Jordan River. Wow. Wow. Now, the Jordan River is kind of smallish if you look at pictures today. But this is flood stage before they took all the water to irrigate the land. Right. This is this is a big river. Yeah. This is a big enough river that this is when Elijah crosses it. Now, Elijah does the same thing. Elijah strikes the water. The water backs up, and Elisha and Elijah walk across it. And then Elijah's taken up in the chariot of fire, and Elisha picks up the thing, and he walks back, and he strikes the river. It parts and he walks across it.
0: <laughs> oh, it's so cool!
1: Um, I have a story about the crossing of the Atlantic, about Christopher Columbus, his story, and about when he was on board and how he's actually standing there. About and it's a beautiful story because, um, it... he is part of the restoration. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: And and to see that, I'm reading actually in Journal of Discourses when Orson Hyde speaks to the saints in 1854, and he's telling the saints that it was Moroni that guided Columbus to America.
0: Yep. Yep. I've read that many times.
1: I'm sitting there looking for this because I'm reading the journals one Sunday. And just as I'm sitting there, I move and this rainbow strikes across the actual page where that passage is. And I had to have my daughter quick take a picture. That's why it's in the book right there.
0: Oh, yeah. that is, dude, that is such a a, a tender mercy of confirmation. Right, it absolutely just, was. just just those little things. I'll I'll tell you what, I'll I'll share something that happened fairly similar to me, just while I was on vacation. I was, again, of all places in Disneyland. And it was our last day. And I'll be honest with you. We talked about it a little bit before we started recording. I've been nervous about this presentation I'm going to give at the Torah conference. And I thought, well, maybe I should do it on something else. Maybe I need to 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 maybe call Joshua and be like, "Hey, man, I, I, maybe we I should change this up." And my daughter said, "Hey, let's go watch this thing about Lincoln real quick." And so, we go in and there's this presentation about Lincoln and it's the first time animatronics were ever used. So it's, uh, uh, back in the, I want to say fifties, it's a robot of Lincoln and he's given a couple of addresses and he says some things that are very, very, um, in line with what this talk was going to be. And then we stepped out. And as we stepped out, they were, excuse me, they were doing the changing of, they were taking down the flag for the evening and they had everyone there and they, you know, sang the national Anthem. And it was just kind of like your rainbow on the page. It was just that tender mercy. Like, no, you're, you're good. You keep going. And just those little tender, tender mercies do so much for us. I think as, as we're trying to do what's right. Sorry off topic. I know.
1: That's okay. No, it's all part of it. It's, it's, um, we're kind of, we're into this nine o'clock, like we often do. We go along.
0: Yeah, that's my fault.
1: You'll have to decide to break them apart. But, um, you know, one of the most important parts of crossing, and I talk a lot about there. I, there are things that you'll learn about the Mayflower, the pilgrims, about Christ, about the crossing of the Delaware by Washington. There are things you're gonna learn, even if you know that story, that I'm pretty sure there's some little pieces that you probably didn't know. But the most important crossing, if we understand, is that every human being crosses the water barrier to come into life, every single one. We cross through the amniotic fluid of life, and then you must cross back through the waters of baptism. You cannot come into or out of mortality and get back to the kingdom of god or get back into heaven without going through the waters of uh, baptism and you come in through water and you leave through water yep so that's there's a quite a bit of stu- uh, scriptural stuff about this and how it connects to water <coughs> and i um there's just a fun little story about a polaris jack a dolphin that actually spends 24 years guiding ships back in 1912 he actually He dies in 1912, but he spends 24 years guiding ships across this dangerous path. He's a dolphin that just shows up and he will guide the ships across the rocky things. And then, really, 24 years he guides ships across this treacherous path called the French Pass in New Zealand. (laughs) That's crazy. You think those aren't testimonies, right? Right. Anyway, so the final kind of chapter we're talking about promises kept. This is Elijah versus God. um, Elijah's God versus Baal. And you you remember the story about... Right. Well, the connection of water is pretty fantastic because what he does is after Baal does and tries to do everything, he actually digs a trench around his... And dumps 12 barrels of water on his sacrifice in the wood. And then God consumes everything, consumes the stones, the water, the sacrifice, and the altar. Ugh. And there's a lot about the story of, of where um, Jezebel comes from and how she's connected. She's a Canaanite. She's actually a Philistine or not a um, she's a Phoenician. She comes from the people that are the Phoenicians. And then I talk about, about the temples and about how, even in our own nation, the water features, all temples have water features.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: all have to. Okay, that's part of their temple organization. And a lot of people don't realize when they look at Washington, D.C., that the, where the Lincoln Memorial is, is considered a temple. And it actually calls it a temple, and right directly in front of it down the steps is this massive water feature that looks across to the Washington Monument, which is a representation of all 50 states. Right. So you have an organization of the nation, all 50 states, water feature separating a temple, and the significance is mind-boggling that we, you could write a whole book just on the symbolism of those kind of things. And that's the little picture of uh, the Salt Lake Temple back in the when it was first set up and it was built right along City Creek because that right. was the flowing water for the temple. And then it kind of ends with this discussion about your choice, about the irreducible complexity of all of the biological systems and God's systems, and about how every single thing testifies of Christ and water. And my last kind of a favorite story to, is to talk about there's a flower. It's called the skeleton flower, and it's thin and it's white. But when it rains, when it's wet by water, it turns absolutely transparent, clear.
0: Holy cow.
1: It's its, its own little testimony. When Isaiah, he talks about the snow, and did you know that, for example, all crystals of snow are not white, they're clear.
0: Right, yep.
1: Individual crystals are clear. And so when Isaiah says, the Lord's poetry to Isaiah, he says, Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So and, and then later he says, with his living water, he washes away sins and says, wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Now, when you take all of the individual snowflakes, imagine that you and I and every other person together is these individual snowflakes that alone we are transparent, almost unseeable. But when we come together, we reflect the whole trans...
0: Right.
1: It's white because we're reflecting all of the colors of the rainbow, right? The full pure light we are a reflection of christ not individually we're invisible individually but when we come together we become a white reflection of christ
0: and that's why i think especially when you start talking about zion being of one heart and one mind that coming together that unity if you, you know, the Lord said, if you're not one, you are not mine. I think that is very, very appropriate.
1: Well, that's basically a quick run through. Dude. And it's, it's a, it's a, it was a blast to write. It was a testimony to me of, of God's workings even more. Um, You know, I want to share it. With that, yeah, I'm.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And you're writing a follow-up now. You said about salt.
1: Yep. Uh, actually, I'll just uh, pop over if I'm. Let me see if I can. Sh- I'll stop the share and I will share with you. I was just designing the cover of that. I'll let you take a sneak peek at the cover too. And tell me what you think. Okay. That's the kind of a sneak peek of the, of the salt book.
0: Um, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Dude, run with that. That is cool. That's cool. Now, real quick, tell me about the uh, the other book that you have that just went to to press on uh, the five books of Moses.
1: Yeah, so that's this one right here. Okay. And it's the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and it's the Joseph Smith inspired version. So it's done like the other annotated books where the words of christ are in red and there's commentary i've got quite a few pages and thoughts and things i've added there in commentary plus we have the book of abraham kind of laid alongside so when you're reading the old testament you're reading this plus abraham and you're there's just a lot of that brought together um you know so that it makes the creation sequence now here's the thing a lot of times you don't realize this, but the Book of Mormon is a salvation document. Okay, in other words, everything in it is about salvation only. Right. The Three covenants is an exaltation document. Yep. Yep. Well, Genesis one through eleven is a, is the salvation part of Genesis. Genesis twelve through fifty is the rest of it. It's the exaltation part. Mm-hmm. That's because starting with Genesis twelve is the story of Abraham, and so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then all of the people that lead up to the point where they have to leave, these are the steps that lead us to, literally, the steps of exaltation. Right. So the gospel, the fullness of the gospel is in Genesis. And by looking at this, um, you'll be amazed at how much the Lord is speaking in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus. That book is actually probably about 70% read. All the words in the Old Testament is by far more words of directly from Christ than not. It's right. it, is, it is truly a book of Christ, and we're just excited. We just sent that off to the printer. I suppose it'll be here probably in the fall. We're doing pre-orders right now. Right now, they're only it's um we're pre-ordering for uh, forty nine dollars.
0: That's not bad at all. Oh. that's not bad at all do me a favor when that thing is ready to be when it's out right when the copies start going out let's you and i get back together and talk about that and then maybe another episode on on the book about salt because if we just covered that kind of deep doctrine about water i'm super fascinated about salt because that comes up a lot in in scripture and the lord's parables
1: well, I appreciate you taking the time. And yeah. if, you know, right now we have the the inspired version. If you anybody wants the inspired version, that's available. I really can't tell you enough. Read the inspired version. Yeah. Um, and you can get that on our website, TrueSeekersFoundation.com.
0: And that's where all the books are too, right, Russ?
1: In the water book, all the annotated books.
0: So Dude. I I wanna second that. I mean It's pretty much like when I do my scripture study now, it's the it's my go to for the Old New Testament is is the inspired version. Sure. Um, it it, I. I just I I know it sounds kind of sacrilege until you read it yourself, but. There is so much that is restored in the inspired version of the Bible. Right. Um, To me, I feel like with with the Book of Mormon, I think Joseph comes through as a prophet the most. And the Doctrine and Covenants. Hmm. But when he dives back into the Bible, I really feel like you see Joseph's seership on full display. Because now he's going back, as it were. And cleaning up all those things, making sure that those plain and precious parts have been restored. And...
1: That's a great point. It
0: it absolutely has changed how I view and study the Bible, 100%. 100%. I can't recommend it enough to everybody. Get yourself an inspired version. Because... It will absolutely deepen your understanding and your appreciation of the gospel. For
1: sure. Dude, you do such great.
0: It has. You do such great work. My mind is always blown. Like I feel like I need to sit here with a with a roll of duct tape right before we get going because I know I'm gonna have to use it to put all the pieces back together. But it is it is always such a pleasure to talk with you, Russ.
1: Good to talk to you too.
0: Let's do it again. See, brother. See, yes. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.